This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everyone. Hi, everybody. I still don't know what to say here now that we're doing (laughs) since we're doing awesome self-promotion at the start. I don't know. How many months has it been? When am I going to actually get used to it? (laughs) I just don't have a good transition line here, which apparently is just turning into my bantering with you about not knowing how to make the transition. That's my that's my official transition. Prove it isn't. Um, Okay, anyway, so awesome self-promotion. We will start by giving a big thank you to three new patrons. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to Nafar, Bridget, and Kimmy. We appreciate you guys a lot. If you want to become a patron and get shouted out like Nafar, Bridget, and Kimmy, you can do that at patreon.com slash dbtandme. Uh, And also, fun times, we just realized, we can put all of these links in the show notes so i'm going to say them now but (laughs) i know three years into podcasting and one day this randomly hit me out of the blue i'm like oh yeah we could just be putting links to these things in the show in every episode of the show notes why have we not been doing this so (laughs) what better time than the present that's fair see now at least we weren't thinking about it for those three years i still think it's funny that i had been having earnest intention to change the diary cards for the dbt groups for a about six years without actually taking action on it. So three years is half that time. Good job, us. Uh, So we'll read off the the links and websites to things. But if you didn't catch it, uh, just know you can go to the show notes from now on and they will be there as well. So yes, Patreon, that's one thing. If you'd like to support us other ways, you can do that by going to our Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash dbtandme. Give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening to us. Send us emails at dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com. We really love hearing from you folks. And last but certainly not least, check out our other podcast, The Couch and the Chair. Wherever you're listening to this one, that one will also be hanging out. So, all the things. Now, I have it's a weird thing to introduce because I'm so used to doing this the first night of group. So, speaking of things that it's strange it took three years to do, (laughs) we're going to go over the skills training assumptions, right? Skills training assumptions, I think is what the Mm -hmm. actual handout is called. That's the title of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, these are basically the, oh, was it seven? I should have counted beforehand. These, like, seven founding assumptions, I guess it's in the title, right, or maybe principles of DBT. These are things that DBT training assumes to be true about the world and the people in it, uh, including, you know, anybody taking DBT. So I I definitely know that some of these are more or less, um, shall we say, popular. 
when I'm leading groups. So I expect that, yeah, these are good things to go over just to share our thoughts, introduce folks to them if they haven't heard them other places already. And yeah, talk about what comes up for us when we hear these things. Uh, and you'll get opportunity to focus in a little bit more on what comes up for you guys during the closing moment. Sneak hint. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Anything to add to that before we dive into the seven things, Michelle? Yeah, I don't know if I have too much to add. <laughs> I was just realizing with picking this for a topic that, you know, as you said, right, we tend to, in the groups that we lead, we have this as a handout that's included in the first night of group as a way to introduce some of the things that DBT believes. And also, we've never really taken a deep dive into it. So in preparing for this episode and thinking about some of these things, I'm like, wow, some of these can be pretty deep. That's true. Yes. <laughs> but we haven't talked about them that much, at least in the groups that we've run in the past. So I'm excited to talk about them more in detail today and see what comes up for each of us. So Fantastic. You're leading us off, I think, with the first one. Yeah. So I'm going to read the first one and then we're just basically going to take turns going back and forth, sharing our thoughts and reading through the rest of the total of seven of these. So the first one says, people are doing the best they can. And it also says on the handout, all people at any given time are doing the best they can. <laughs> That's the subheading under it, I guess you could say, which basically just repeats the thing of people are doing the best they can. So what do you make of this, Kate? Well, I can tell you that I think it's the least popular one when I do go over them in groups, which I absolutely understand, right? I don't know that this is the case because I wasn't sitting in Marsha's head when she was designing the handouts, but I suspect the reason it restates it as all people at any given time is because that's the part that's the hardest to believe about it. You could be like, you could sell most people on saying most people most of the time are doing the best they can, but to try and sell people on all people are doing the best they can, like pretty much all the time, that's harder. Um, and I know you're going to be going into some of the places where you think that can be difficult. I think for myself and maybe for a lot of other people too, will resonate that this is harder kind of in two places. Uh, the first one is when someone has hurt us, right? When someone has done something that emotionally, mentally, even physically has harmed us or, or maybe other people, we've watched that person be violent or harmful in some fashion. Uh, that's a really rough spot to believe that that human being was doing the best they could in that moment. I also think it makes it a little bit weird because you want to believe, and I think are oftentimes correct in believing that that person could do better. The question is, could they do better in that moment? Right? Like, not are they capable of better as a human or at some point in the future, but could they really uh, be said to be doing their best right then? It's difficult. Right? So I get it. Right? This is a tough and complicated situation to be in. And empathy can be helpful here. I think the way to turn that one around a little bit is realizing that we've all hurt people. Every single one of us has hurt those around us to a greater or lesser extent with more or less frequency, but nobody that's reached the age of adulthood has gotten there without hurting people. And to realize that even at those times when you were hurting other people around you, that you were still doing your best, right? You weren't 
probably being malicious. And even those of you who were being malicious, I'm betting that there was something in your past, some wounding, some difficulty that made your best in that moment malicious, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be a palatable best. It doesn't even have to be an acceptable best to be someone's best in that moment. Uh, and I find best access to that when I think about the fact that I too have been a hurtful person at times and places throughout my life. And I would want from others the grace of believing that I was doing my best, even if I failed at it, quote unquote. <laughs> and yes, I picked that word on purpose because you're going to mention it, Michelle. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's hard when, when we or others are quote unquote failing, but um, that's also sometimes a place to find that empathy is that we would want grace from others uh, were we in that same position. And the other time that I think it's really hard is when we're being self-judgmental, right? Uh, there are certainly a not inconsiderable number of people who might be willing to believe that this is true about everybody else in the world, but they're dang certain they're not always giving their best. Um, I can certainly fall into that category. <laughs> I'm sure everyone else is doing the best they can, but I'm obviously sucking, right? <laughs> <laughs> I could be performing better, right? I could be more emotionally uh, regulated. I could be, right? So the litany of self of self-judgment is easy to fall into. Um, and again, I think the thing that I emphasize for people is to realize that best doesn't ever have to be good. You may suck royally at a thing all day. <laughs> it may be just objective fact that you're not doing well, right? Or that you're not accomplishing the tasks you set out for yourself or other things that could be um, yeah, in that place of self-judgmental uh, that you'd be like, well, I'm not doing my best. But sometimes your best is 10%. That 10% is probably not enough to accomplish most tasks, but that doesn't mean you're capable of more. <laughs> it just means that sometimes we all fall short. So... Some of that felt a little jumbled, but hopefully that got most of the thoughts across. What about you, Michelle? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, especially that piece there at the end, because we've come back to that idea time and time again on mm -hmm. various episodes about how, you know, our best doesn't always look like 100%. Mm -hmm. Our best is going to vary from day to day. So I like that you are emphasizing some of those things. And I agree with you. This one can be hard to believe. And just speaking from personal experience, I know that I've had a hard time believing that people are doing the best they can when I've seen somebody where, I mean, kind of like what you were just saying, right? I see maybe somebody who's functioning at 10% and I've just thought, well, why aren't they functioning better, right? Perceiving them as failing and not really wanting to think or believe that that is their best in that moment. And I'm thinking back to times in my life where I was quite a bit younger, pre-adulthood times, like maybe in high school and that kind of a thing, judging peers or people I was having to do group projects with and <laughs> why are they doing as much as I'm doing and, and that kind of a thing. So I like that you also talked about some examples of how it's really hard to believe that people are doing the best they can when we have felt hurt by them that kind of a thing. But yeah, I've noticed for myself that it's really hard to believe that people are doing the best they can when I see myself perhaps maybe doing what at least I perceive as better. Or maybe there's some objective measure in that moment of what 
better is. There's some benchmark that we're all striving towards. And I've had times where if I'm reaching that and then the people around me are not, that there has been a lot of judgment that has come with that, that I feel a little bit of shame, honestly, in naming. And yet I think this is a very human experience, the same way that you were naming, that it's a pretty universal truth that we've all done something to hurt somebody. It's probably a pretty universal truth that we've also all judged somebody around us at some time as being lesser than us for some reason. So that's where I really see this one showing up and why this is a good reminder is that when you catch yourself in that judgmental place of like, oh, well, that person isn't doing a good job. That person's failing. Whatever it is that you're thinking to yourself, that person is doing the best that they can. And the thing that's helped me remember that is reminding myself that we can't ever know someone's full story or where they've been. And so we all have different starting places in life. We've all had different experiences. We all hold different identities. So two people can have such wildly different experiences. And then you put them in a situation where maybe, again, the classic thing that I think of is say, you put both of those people in a classroom and say, hey, take this test. One person passes the test. One person doesn't do very well on the test. Why is that, right? There could be so many reasons. And rather than just judging the person who didn't do very well as, well, they weren't trying their best. No, they were. Let's look at the larger picture here as I really think what this this first one of people are doing the best they can is really trying to remind us of is that there's so much more that we don't know for where people have been and to really have compassion, I think, for where anybody is at. Have compassion for the people you see around you who where their best is at 10%. Rather than judging them, have compassion for them. Um, because if we don't do that, I think it can really erode connection. I have seen that come up for myself where, again, when I've been in that pretty judgmental place of like, why aren't they doing this to the extent or as well as I'm doing this with things that, yeah, that that doesn't lead to closeness. That doesn't lead to empathy. That doesn't lead to any of these things that we need and want as human beings to just say, well, your best isn't good enough rather than accepting that their best is their best for what they have at that time. And to value that, I think, is important. Yeah, I like a lot of those thoughts. Yeah, I love how you're talking about like bringing the concept of connection into it um, and how judging can, can get in the way of or erode that. Uh, so the next one says, people want to improve. Uh, and then in parentheses, it says the common characteristic of all people is that they want to improve their lives and be happy. What do you think on that one? Yeah. <laughs> I felt really compelled when it ends with that word, like to be happy. Because again, that can mean so many different things to so many different people and like, what, did, what does that mean? You know, I wanted to get like very philosophical with it. But when I think about what that means to improve our lives and be happy, there were really kind of two things that I thought about. And one of them actually builds pretty nicely on what I was just saying at the end of the last one, which is this concept of connection. Because I believe as human beings, we are all hardwired to want connection. And, of course, that can vary wildly 
for different people. Uh, depending on that spectrum of extroversion and introversion, some people want, you know, this really obvious socializing type of connection nearly all the time. And some people rarely want that. But I think more broadly speaking, connection is about knowing that there are people in this world who appreciate, like, and accept us for who we are and value us. We all want love. (laughs) We all want to be loved. And so that that's a key component of being happy is feeling like we have that type of connection with at least one person, even just having that with one person makes a huge difference in our well-being. There's actually some research I recall reading a long time ago that talked about that. And it had some kind of number of like the happy number. I think I can't remember what it was. I want to say like three. Like that's what people really needed is to have like three people in the world where it's like, I feel a closeness with these people where I love them for who they are. They love me for who I am. I may be making that number up, but there was like a certain number that was like a happy place. And then anything beyond that was like extra, (laughs) but they were measuring like levels of happiness with the number of close connections that you have. So that's a component of it. And then the second piece I think is really this concept of that. We all want to decrease stress. I think as much as possible, nobody, likes stress. Our brains, again, this kind of hardwired sort of looking at it very primally, you could say. Is primally a word? Or is it just primal? Primally? Okay, I think so. Oh, now you're you're making me do it. No, yeah, in a very primal fashion or primally, I think. Yes, yes, exactly, right? Uh, You know, yeah, we're hardwired for connection on a primal level. Our brains also on a primal level do not like chaos and unpredictability. So you can be a very spontaneous, carefree person. And also, to some extent, we all want to decrease stress and chaos as much as we possibly can. So if we're trying to improve our lives, those are really kind of the two things that I thought about this is that we probably want to make sure that we have genuine heartfelt connections with other people And we want to decrease stress as much as we can. So if we're striving for those two things, most of the time, I think that's what it's talking about, that we're trying to improve. And that those are two components that really make up how happy we feel in our lives. And sometimes we're going to go through times where we feel very well connected and we feel very balanced and very calm. And we're going to go through times where all of that feels very disrupted, but that we all want to improve in those areas. That's that's what I believe or how I interpreted this one. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I'm glad you were talking about sort of what it's actually meaning or talking about, because for whatever reason, I didn't go that direction at all uh, with my response, which was, my, I mean, with you, right? I'm with you and with it where, you know, that we are all striving towards some sense of maybe not like, oh, I'm happy every minute of every day, but like baseline happiness, yeah. right? And, and like improvement. contentment rather yeah. than joy. Yeah. Is that kind of what you were thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, again, I sort of was pulled to thinking about like, well, when is that difficult to believe? Like what might be the pushback or, you know, that someone might have about this uh, assumption? And the thing I was thinking about is that this seems to me hardest to believe uh, when 
we're engaging in, or maybe when we see other people <laughs> engaging in, but uh, obviously I live more in the realm of self-judgment, so that's the place my brain goes most easily. Uh, but that a lot of the time it's hard to believe when we're engaging in things that we know to be harmful to ourselves, right? Um, some obviously like self-harm, <laughs> sometimes more removed one step from consequences, like overspending, maybe, uh, things like that, um, sabotaging our relationships or our jobs, right? Things that are definitely not good for us. Uh, and that can seem like, well, obviously, if I wanted to improve, or if I wanted to be happy, I wouldn't be doing these things, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's a place where there can be a lot of pushback. And so the thing that I was thinking about is just wanting to lean into reminding people that most I, I'm I'm always read I'm always reticent to say all haha -ha. um it's I, I am reticent to say all but somewhere between most and all uh unhealthy behaviors or self-destructive behaviors etc started out as coping mechanisms and or survival mechanisms in us right I'll just take self-harm since that's my story that I have the most intimacy with in that regard and say that, yeah, I mean, when I first started self-harming, it was absolutely a coping mechanism and a tool for survival, right? It was not the best tool, but it's the one I understood and reached for. Uh, and that's how it got so cemented, right? Is that it started off as something that either was or seemed entirely necessary in a situation, and then it just outlives its usefulness. Um, and so trying to have some more grace, for ourselves, realizing that we can absolutely want happiness and self-improvement and be even actively pursuing those things and dialectically also still have a hard time getting out of behaviors that are currently destructive to ourselves. Right? They don't have to counsel each other out that those patterns of behavior and those desires don't have to be mutually exclusive, I would say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think you're really getting at that thing of like, we can want to improve and also not be capable of it at the time, not be ready for it, mm -hmm. want something else more mm -hmm. than we want to improve. Be in an and environment like that isn't supporting our change, right? Like, like environmental factors might be pushing back. Yeah, there's so much, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I like that spin you on it. I'm really glad you talked about those things with this one. Okay. The next one is longer. <laughs> it says, people need to do better, try harder, and be more motivated to change. The fact that people are doing the best they can and want to do even better does not mean that these things are enough to solve the problem. And for this one, there's a footnote here where they say, but trying harder and being more motivated may not be needed if progress is steady and at a realistic rate of improvement. So how do you make sense of this one, Kate? Because there's a lot contained in there uh, to sort through. <laughs> I admit, I, I this is not my favorite. Um, one of the reasons it's not my favorite is because I feel like the footnote just undoes the the top bit. I know it doesn't, but it is an it is an entire about face from the assumption. So it seems a little bit like this is assumed in some cases, but not necessarily mm. most or all. Anyway, so it just feels 
I get dialectics, but this one feels more like contradiction than dialectics to me sometimes. But doing my best to give it the benefit of the doubt. I, there's a few things that came up for me that I thought this might be talking about. One of them is just acknowledging that it's really hard to stay motivated. Right? You can start off on things with a bang. Right? Like, that's right, I'm going to the gym five days a week. Watch me. Uh, and I do five the first week and five the second week and four the third and then five and then three and then, I'm you know, two months. I'm not going to the gym anymore. It's hard, right, to maintain a level of engagement. Right? But change, especially emotional and mental change, is exhausting. It's incredibly difficult work. And it can be so easy to, like, give up the ghost to throw in the towel or uh, give up a little bit on pushing through all that difficulty and exhaustion. So I think this is something where you can kind of touch base to remember like, nope, I need to keep trying, right? There's still more effort in me to put into this. There's still more motivation to be found, right? Like I need to keep pushing forward, right? In order to see the changes that I want. Um, because the other thing that when oddly, I didn't put this in my notes, but as you're reading it, Michelle, I was more focused in on the part where it says, um, just because people are doing the best they can and want to do better doesn't mean that those things are enough to solve the problem. And I think that maybe that's a lot of what this is focusing in on is wherever you are is the best you can give right now. And you probably, it seems at least plausible that you would not necessarily be seeking out DBT if your best was already enough to solve the problems that you had at hand. Right? And so we need to be working to improve what our best is and looks like in order to solve problems that, you know, hitherto have been implacable, right? Like things that we couldn't touch. Uh, we need to change so that we can touch them, right? So that we can make movement happen there. Uh, and uh, I think <laughs> that it's also an acknowledgement that there's almost always room to strive and improve while also still acknowledging that there's not literally always room. <laughs> <laughs> to improve, right? Mm -hmm. If you're if you're leaning in and you're changing at, like I said, like they say, a realistic rate of improvement, right? You don't have to be sprinting to the finish line. But as long as you're putting in a lot of time and effort and making noticeable change or improvement, maybe that's as hard as you need to lean into that because you're already spending a lot of time and effort and energy into it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think those are my main thoughts. <laughs> nice. I view this one, because it's the third one in, as really kind of a summary of the things up until this point, right? Because we say this dialectic a lot, and we're really summarizing some of these concepts that we're talking about so far in this episode, which is that people are doing the best they can, and they need to do better. We just put that into one single sentence a lot. And so that's a pretty common dialectic that we touch on. And that's what the first one said, right? The first one we talked about today is people are doing the best they can. And then this third one that we're talking about is that people need to do better. I actually really like the asterisk <laughs> that they have, the little footnote that they put on this handout where they say, but trying harder and being more motivated may not be needed if progress is steady and at a realistic rate of improvement. Because if you're a perfectionist like me, you need that reminder. Because initially when you first read it, just at face value, people need to do better, try harder, be more motivated to change. Probably your first thought is, oh my gosh, an A isn't good enough. I need to get an A+. <laughs> I feel like this one is trying to be like, nah, it's okay. Like, 
Go easy on yourself. I like how you phrase it, Kate. You don't have to sprint towards the finish line. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's all you need to keep doing. Doesn't matter how fast or slow you get there. As long as you're trying, you're getting at what this principle really means. So just making sure I think of practicing some caution here around that you're not using this whole idea. People need to do better, try harder, and be more motivated to change to shame yourself if you are already taking steps towards change. You're doing it. That's great. Um, what I think it is really getting at, though, is that if we look at the one we just talked about, which stated that people want to improve. There's something that we all want to improve or be better or different in our lives that if we do want things to improve, we may need to take some kind of action to make that happen. And that's why we need to do better, try harder, and be more motivated to change if we want whatever the thing is to improve. We've got to implement this idea here to have that improvement that we all want. So yeah, I, I think you actually gave a good example to Kate of like how this really practically speaking does apply to somebody choosing to enter a DBT group, right? They're entering the DBT group because there's something that they want to improve in their lives. And that means they're going to need to do better, try harder, and be more motivated to change within the DBT group to find that improvement that they're seeking. Yeah, I like those. See, this is why it's good to have both of us because we have such different thoughts about things. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the do. same. It's a good balance, both, which is fun. Um, all right, let's see what is the next one. This one says people may not have caused all our own problems, but they have to solve them anyway. And I really think that's awkward English. And ought to be people may not have caused all their own problems. But they have to solve them anyway. Um, people have to change their own personal responses and alter their environment for their life to change. Uh, and there is a little asterisk here that remarks that parents and caregivers need to assist children in that task. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Michelle? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. The wording is weird. We say this <laughs> in groups. We, I don't know. It feels like a typo or a mistake to me. But really what they're getting at here is that just because you may not have solved all of your own problems, you are still responsible to solve them anyways. And that, um, yeah, that piece too that you were reading there about like, yeah, we need to change our own behavioral responses and alter environments for our life to change. So basically, I mean, yeah, you may not have caused something terrible to happen, but it did. And you're left to pick up the pieces and try to solve it. What happens, I think, a lot is that sometimes this is where willfulness can really come in very strong is because we're thinking to ourselves, well, I didn't cause this. I shouldn't have to do anything to fix it. And what does that do? That just keeps us stuck. That really puts a halt to our own healing around whatever the thing was if we're just going to dig in our heels and say, well, it, I didn't do it, so I shouldn't have to have a skillful response here, kind of an idea. 
I really think that the whole distress tolerance module applies very well to this one in particular because the way that Kate and I have always explained and approached distress tolerance is that it's a set of skills that's really fantastic when you are dealing with things that have happened that you didn't cause that are outside of your control. The universe just plopped something into your life that was shitty. And now you are trying to pick up the pieces and you don't know how to solve this problem and move forward from it. And the distress tolerance skills very much help with that. The whole concept of radical acceptance really plays into this one that we're talking about. But the reason why I do like this one is that I think it touches on this idea that we are always in control of our reactions. We can't control prompting events. We can't always control what happens. As we're moving through this world, for better or for worse, we don't always like to think about it or look at it, but something terrible could just happen at any given time to us, right? But no matter what takes place in our lives, we control what we do after the event has happened. And so that comes down to the, you know, but we have to solve them anyway part. How do you want to solve this? How do you want to face this? How do you want to show up? And how you can have that be in alignment with your values and who you are at your core so that you feel good about how you're responding to this really awful thing that's taking place. So I think it's honestly like a very key idea of DBT as a whole, this one. And that DBT skills in general were very much designed to help people with this very thing so that you are not responding in a way that's willful or that's very much rooted in emotion mind. You can respond and pick up the pieces from a place that's more in your wise mind. That's what they're really getting at here. I like that you talk a lot about stuff that's sort of more in the present moment uh michelle because a lot of what i was thinking about or how i relate to this assumption i guess i was like skill no uh whatever this is uh so this assumption is through relating it to my childhood trauma right so like really old shit um because that my childhood trauma is not my fault right no 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 mea culpa here i didn't do anything to cause it. I didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. Uh, and yet <laughs> it happened. And that being said, especially now that I'm an adult, um, and I do like that they talk about parents and caregivers needing to assist kids with this, because if I were still a kid, I would need that help. But uh, right, as an adult, I'm in charge of handling the after effects of that trauma. Right? I absolutely understand the temptation to right be like well it's not my fault i was traumatized this is just how i am right to sort of disown because you're not in charge of the or didn't cause right the the cause of your trauma to disown the effects of it right that's not my responsibility i can't change anything and sort of a lack of agency or a lack of ownership of doing what's needed to deal with the situation as it is currently, which I guess is sort of how you, we come back to the present moment where you are, Michelle, uh, right, is, yeah, all these things may have happened, might be happening, might have happened years and years and years ago in your past. But you're the only one who can change you, right? And 
Ultimately, you're the only one who can handle your own problems, wherever the cause came from. And so I really see this as a reminder of our agency. Um, it's both a call out that, yeah, hey, you have to deal with your shit. But it's also a reminder that, hey, you get to deal with your shit. <laughs> Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> you can do it and you can do it. Like you were really emphasizing, Michelle, about choice, like how you want to, right? Like how do you want to tackle this problem? Um, that's your choice, even if the problem to start with was not your choice. Mm -hmm. Yes, good stuff. Okay, the next one says, new behavior has to be learned in all relevant contexts. New behavior skills have to be practiced in the situations where the skills are needed, not just in the situation where the skills are first learned. This is going to be hard for Michelle and I not to say the same things about, but I'm sure we're going to try. Yep. We're basically just going to repeat ourselves. That's okay. It'll really stick, hopefully. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so Michelle and I, as you may have guessed from that intro, uh, talk about this a lot. Um, right. The skills, it's, it's great to go to a skills class or go to a book you're reading or do something else and just get this exposure to the skills. It's a lot better than nothing, but the skills really need to be thought about and practiced in real life in order to stick and really grow, right. To, to like embrace those skills, hone those skills, right. Make it so that there's something you can reach for with relative ease, right? That's not going to happen in the classroom. There's not enough time in the classroom. There's not even enough time when you're reading the book to try and cement whole new habits or behaviors. Um, and the thing that I wanted to emphasize about that, I'm sure Michelle will go more into the rest of it, but is, well, yes, please goodness, think about and practice the skills in real life. Also, please goodness, don't jump, don't just jump straight into the most difficult of contexts for those skills, right? Like, I don't know, uh, if I'm going to be practicing an interpersonal effectiveness skill, I might want to start with practicing that interpersonal effectiveness skill with, say, Michelle, before I start practicing that interpersonal skill with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Why thank you, Kate? <laughs> right, like there's a there's a there's a good reason to do something that where you feel really anxious and uncertain and like you're learning about something with someone where you already feel pretty safe and you're needing to practice going through like the motions of a skill in real life, but not necessarily in a place with really high consequences. Um, right? If I fuck up doing a deer man with Michelle, nothing bad is going to happen. <laughs> Right. I fuck up doing it with my mother and I could be in for it. Right. For a really unpleasant interaction to come from that. So, yes, in real life, but not in their most needed contexts right away. Practice in lower. Uh, yeah. With lower cost scenarios, I would say. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you get to say the same thing again? <laughs> I was so relieved well, I, was I got to go first just... on this one. I'll be admit, I'll admit it. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. I was, I was just thinking. I didn't say anything about this in my notes, but something I metaphorically talk about a lot with my clients. I can come up with metaphors for like swimming and bodies <laughs> of water all day long. I know I've done that a time or two on the podcast here with all of you, but that's really what you were just getting at there. Kate is like, we don't want you to go diving into the deep end of the pool if you don't know how to swim. 
But also, I hope that you are in a skills group when you're learning these skills where they are giving you a chance to practice in group. I hope so. Because again, it's like if you you can tell somebody how to swim all day long, but if they don't get in the water, they're not going to actually be able to do it. So I hope that in your group setting, you do feel like you're wading into the water and <laughs> practicing a little bit with with swimming so to speak but yes you need to go slow and steady not dive into the deep end of the pool but also not like stand on the shore and think that you're going to figure out how to swim you won't <laughs> you've got to practice so yes we do we talk about this a lot and also i think it's one of those things where, yeah, just it's really getting at just knowing the skills is not enough. I think that's one of the things like, don't get me wrong. I feel so great that we decided to do this podcast and have this as a resource for people because I hope it's helpful. <laughs> and also, <laughs> right, I know the same way that we were talking about, the same way that attending a skills group is not enough, the same way that reading a workbook is not enough. Yeah, I hope that our podcast is helpful. I know that this isn't enough either. It's not enough to just, yeah, listen to a podcast episode. It's not enough to just read a chapter in a book. It's not enough to do those things. At some point, yes, you do need to take the risk to go out and do it. I was also kind of metaphorically thinking of it as like, you can learn the letters of the alphabet, but if you don't know how to read, it doesn't serve you. So like, you can know DBT skills, right? I can ask you, what does accept stand for? Maybe you can recite every letter back to me. Awesome. <laughs> Have you, Kate's like, I don't know if I get <laughs> We always have to brush up our acronyms still to this day. So you can have a lot of like knowledge in your head about DBT and understand it. If you are not trying it in your life, it there's no point. So that may sound really harsh, but there is no point. And we talk about this. I can't remember. We have some episode. Hmm. Can't remember which one it is. I think we talk about like how to use DBT skills in everyday life. I think that's the title of the podcast episode. Something to that effect. I don't remember when we posted it. It was a long time ago. Ugh. I don't have a lot of good information to go off of here, but we did. We recorded an episode all about this that I would encourage you to go listen to if you haven't already, where you find yourself in that place where you're like, I have done a lot of learning about DBT. I feel like I understand it. I don't know if I'm using it, <laughs> but I feel like I understand it. Go listen to that episode because we really give some practical ways to help you start, so to speak, getting your feet wet in the DBT waters of how to actually start doing doing the thing, right? How to actually start using DBT in your life. Because, yeah, otherwise you you won't actually benefit from it. I know, it's not, you're like, oh, harsh, but true. <laughs> yeah, there's the dialectic there. Yeah. It is harsh and it is true at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> Those things. Uh, all right, let's see. We're getting close to mm -hmm. the end. Not quite there yet. Uh, so this one yep, says, two more all... okay, I can count. No, I can't. The uh, <laughs> All behaviors, actions, thoughts, emotions are caused. There is always a cause or a set of causes for our actions, thoughts, and emotions, even if we don't know what the causes are. Hmm. Oh, yes. Sorry, yawning. 
Oh, no worries. So I've talked about this. I feel like it comes up more in Q&As than maybe on monthly episodes. But I'm going to recap a concept here that's actually not a concept from DBT. I think this is more a concept from cognitive behavioral therapy. But it applies to everything, which is basically that this is what's happening pretty much at all times in our lives. First, something happens. Then we think something. Then we feel something. And then we do something. Those four steps. Something happens. We think something. We feel something. We do something. So what this means, if you're following that sequence, our thoughts lead to our emotions, which then lead to our behavior. Now, this happens crazy fast. Milliseconds sometimes <laughs> between something happening, a thought, a feeling, and then an action in response. This is rapid. This is quick. So we can't always catch it of like what are each of those components before we're just sometimes doing something and we're already at step number four because it can happen so quickly and sometimes we need to respond very quickly for survival. So there's something very adaptive about the speed of how quickly we respond when a prompting event takes place. I would say with this, it's it's not always important, even though, yes, it says all behaviors are caused. I don't think it's that important to try to always pinpoint the exact cause of our behavior. That can be more trouble than it's worth. What I do think is important about this idea is that, and I think we'll actually talk about this somewhat in the final one that I'm about to read afterwards, is that just, just know that there is some cause. And sometimes you might be able to catch it. Occasionally, sometimes, even if you don't catch it in the moment, you might be able to catch it after. Where you're like, oh, I was doing that thing because I was thinking da-da-da-da-da, right? And you can figure out some pieces of the puzzle. But it's really just about believing that they're there, right? This can be a common thing sometimes where people, yeah, just take the stance of like, well, I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why I feel what I feel. I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. Again, you don't have to know for everything. But if you find yourself trying to use that as a way to say, it's not my fault, why I did what I did. That's not going to work so well. And again, we're going to, I think, dive into that more in the next one. So I don't want to say too much more there. But what I will end with before I turn it over to Kate to share her thoughts on this one is that there are so many DBT skills that I feel like were designed because of this whole idea that all behaviors are caused. This is why I didn't actually write this down in my notes, but this is why behavior chain analyses are a thing. I... It's exactly actually what a behavior chain analysis is designed to do is to help you go back and really break it down step by step to get into the minutia of what you were thinking and feeling. So behavior chain analyses, very helpful for this one. But I was also thinking of some skills I wrote down, like check the facts, pros and cons. These are all things to help you get curious about why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah, especially pros and cons, right? Why am I engaging in this quote-unquote problem behavior? Well, there's a cause. Mm-hmm. Just got to get curious about it, figure it out. So, so many DBT skills can really help with figuring out the cause behind behaviors. 
So I guess there's kind of a dialectic in there of like, it's important to try to figure out the cause for your behavior. And also, <laughs> don't be too hard on yourself if it's hard to figure out the cause of your behavior. I think both those things are true. There is a cause. You don't always have to know what it is. If you can figure it out, that's helpful. I so like that. Maybe that makes sense. I hope it makes a little sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes some sense. And I also like, right, you, I mean, they use the word behaviors. So I understand why you're sort of mm-hmm. focused in on that. But for whatever reason, the part that I always focus in on here a lot is the emotions bit, right? That there's a set of causes mm. for emotions, even if we don't know what the causes are. Because I think I can say that we all have on some occasions what I, uh, <laughs> some quasi affectionately term like free floating moods right like i don't know think about times you just woke up on the quote-unquote wrong side of the bed or had your grumpy pants on or you know other times where anxiety maybe just overwhelms you right like feelings that just sort of like percolate into (laughs) into our awareness from uh, i don't know right like i can't i cannot point to anything with any ease in my immediate environment that caused this like that happens and i think that with your behaviors, especially, Michelle, I, I like your idea. Like, if you can figure out why, that's pretty good. That's helpful, right? Yes. Um, and I suppose the same is true for emotions. But I, I tend to think that this one's one you're sometimes less likely to necessarily find the why of it, like what the cause was. And I notice folks can get really lost in the weeds of the why, <laughs> right? Trying to find the why. Uh, humans are complicated creatures, right? There is, I'd like that they specify in the little the subtext on this one, um, there is always a set or, sorry, always a cause or set of causes, right? So often there's more than one or even two or maybe 12 things going on, going into why we're feeling, however we're feeling in a given moment or about a given thing. And so, yeah, if you can answer that question, it might be helpful in helping you emotionally regulate or tolerate your distress or do other things. But ultimately, handling the mood you're in with skill, with grace, whatever, is going to be much more important than learning why you're there in the first place. Right? Maybe you did just wake up hating everything. I know that's happened to me on occasion. And if you can figure out why you hated everything and can address that reason, fan-fucking-tastic, but... It's still my job to go out into my world not being awful. <laughs> right? See, we may not have caused our problems, but they're ours to fix. They all feed into each other really well, these seven, I think. Thank you. Um, right? Uh, and so it just just a reminder that don't get lost, right, in the weeds of why, because why may be more complicated than we have much of a chance of figuring out. <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. Uh, You can stall your own action to try and move through the mood, pass the mood, handle the mood well. There's all these other things that you could be putting your energy towards that if you're just on the repeat block of why, 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 right? And you can't find the answer, that can keep you really stuck. So um, ask the question. And if the answer isn't (laughs) somewhat forthcoming, maybe deal more with just where you are and what's actually happening then. Just getting stuck on the why, I think, was the thing I wanted to focus on about that one. Yeah. It was also coming to me with this one as you were talking that I don't think either of us emphasized too strongly, but I imagine we would probably both agree with that. I think some of this is really just about like the whole concept of all behaviors are caused to have compassion for yourself. 
Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah. Yes. Even if you don't, if, even if you, you don't have the up. why, just know that there's some reason. That there is there's one. You're not just crazy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Totally right. that, that, right? Right. That quote yeah, unquote, I'm just, just crazy. crazy. Right. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't represent some, like, I don't know, character flaw within you mm-hmm. or again, that you're some isolated person experiencing this and it's only something within you for you know i don't know like just to recognize like no there's a reason yep there's some there's some good reason for this even if you don't know what it is just know that there's something more behind that (laughs) yep yeah totally now that's a really good thing i'm glad you brought that up yeah yeah oh good thanks last one says figuring out and changing the causes of behavior works better than judging and blaming. Judging and blaming are easier, but if we want to create change in the world, we have to change the chains of events that cause unwanted behaviors and events. <laughs> I like A lot chain, change the chains. That's really easy to read and really hard to read out loud now that I hear you say that. It's hard to read out loud. I hope it made sense. So, uh, sneak preview. A lot of what Michelle is going to talk about has to do with ideas like the blaming other people. So I wanted to take it once again (laughs) into the realm of self-blame, right? Uh, And self-judgment. So I'm not, whether or not this is your actual thoughts, bear with me. Uh, If you've done something that you find really terrible, the thought, I'm a shitty human being is not actually inspiring or motivating. We probably mean it to be, right? We're like, oh, I was going to... Good word that most people won't know. Excoriate. Anyway, um, you don't need to be uh, punishing yourself, right, for this, right? But you think you do, right? There's this idea of if I say I'm a shitty human being, if I'm self-judgmental, if I put the blame at my feet, that's going to motivate me to do differently next time, right? I'm just going to shit on myself until I do better. (laughs) This is a... I guess I can't speak to other countries, but at least in America, there's a very common way of thinking and moving through the world, right? I will just be awful until I'm motivated to be better. Exactly. Yes. A thing that was literally meant to mean an impossible thing when the phrase was created. Go us. And now is our national motto. America. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) what it actually does, really, really, statements like I'm a shitty human being, it actually does a lot to take away your agency and your reason to change. I am a shitty human being. That's a statement of who I am, right? That's a core fundamental truth that I'm trying to put out there, right? I am this thing, right? Um, Or I'm just so terrible. I can't believe I'm that stupid, right? Like all the things that we might be saying to ourselves that are nasty and mean take away our agency and reason to change. It takes away our agency by declaring it as a a just truth, right? I am shitty. (laughs) Not I did a shitty thing. Not I struggle with doing not shitty things, right? But no, I am this thing. And that strips away a lot of agency and a lot of reason to change because why would I even try to change or shift something that's so fundamental or core to myself? But it also, uh, I've probably said this idea at the podcast at some point because it's something I say all the time, but right, if you have two human beings out there in the universe, one you think is awesome and one you think is terrible, who are you going to give your time and effort to? You're going to give your time and effort to the person you think is awesome. Because fuck that shitty human being over there. And that works if you're the shitty human being, right? If you think you're awful, you're not worth your own time and effort to change. 
And real change takes a lot of time and effort, right? You have to have some even willingness to believe that there might be a person in there worth putting all that effort into, or you're never going to do it. So I think there's a lot of caution to be had around self-jame and blumming. Okay, I, that's a that's a nice spoonerism, Kate. Uh, anyway, judging and, judging and blaming into yes. a word. I, well, I tried to swap. I tried to swap the beginnings. Bludging and jaming. Bludging, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> judging and blaming. You are bludging. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so anyway, right? It's 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 very dangerous. It it steals a lot of your reason to change. It steals your sense that there's a possibility of changing. Uh, that to be said, I do also want to give much grace and compassion for ending up in that self-judgmental place because it can often be easier. Uh, one, because it can sometimes uh, internally uh, feel like it absolves us of needing to take action or make changes, but also just sometimes because it's what's familiar. It feels safe to be self-judgmental if we've been taught to judge ourselves by other people treating us that way, or, you know, maybe we judge ourselves so before other people can. Uh, to take away their power there. So there's a lot of reasons that we may end up in that place. And I don't want people to f- be judging their judging. Ha <laughs> ha. Mindfulness mm-hmm. intrusion. Um, right. Don't be judging your judging. But do recognize how it disempowers you. Uh, to lean in too hard to that. I think is where I'm going to focus. What are your thoughts, Michelle? Yeah. Like you said, I love that we're focusing on different things. Because you're really focusing on self blame and judgment. And I was really looking at this one as how we can sometimes blame other people for, right, our problems, as we were talking about with the prior one. We not be responsible for our problems, but we are responsible for solving them. And also how sometimes we can just really get sucked into this place where rather than trying to figure out the causes of our own behavior, our own responses... It's much easier to point the finger at somebody else outside of us and say, this is your fault. And then we're like, ah, that means I'm not responsible. Throw up our hands, right? I'm absolved of responsibility because this person did this thing to me and blaming how we respond on somebody else. That's what I really was thinking about with this one of how important it is to make sure that you're not making other people responsible for your behavior. Your reaction to something is never someone else's fault. They may be responsible, like I was talking about earlier, how there's those four steps. They may be responsible for the very first thing of the prompting event. That may be on somebody else. But somebody else cannot control your thoughts, your emotions, and then what you do in response. Those next three things are all on you. So when it talks about this idea of figuring out and changes the, changing the causes of behavior work better than judging and blaming, it's going to serve you to try to figure out, well, why did I think and feel what I did when that thing happened? When that person came up to me, I don't know, got in my face and said what they said, why did I think and feel what I thought and felt? And why did I choose to respond in the way that I did to them? Because we have different options in front of us. Even if it's hard to see what those options are, even if they're not appealing to us, 
there's different paths that we can go down with how we respond and we will grow and change as individuals when we apply this final principle and this final idea here of getting really curious about figuring out changes, the changing the cause of our behavior works better than judging and blaming other people mm-hmm. for why we think they're causing what we're doing. This is really ultimately now that I read this one, <laughs> I'm just thinking about this at the moment. This is what therapy is all about. <laughs> That's why really yep. therapy is all about helping you figure out and change the cause of your behavior so that you're not mm-hmm. judging and blaming other people like I'm talking about, or as Kate was talking about, so that you're not judging and blaming yourself in a way that's just going to bring you down, like erode your self-concept and how you feel about yourself. Like, yeah, if you're just taking, as Kate was saying, right, that whole thing of like, well, I'm just a shitty human being. That's just what it is. <laughs> and you're not actually trying to dig in any deeper to figure out why you even hold that belief and how you can change it and how you can change or shift the way you're moving through the world, yeah, you're just going to be stuck. That's what judging and blaming does. (laughs) Bludging Bludging. keeps us stuck. (laughs) Just keeps us stuck. So when we can figure out and change the causes of behavior, especially those thoughts and emotions pieces, then we start to grow and change. Yeah. Okay. I think hopefully that feels like a good note to end on. I think so. (laughs) All right. So before we move into closing moment, I am going to talk to you all a little bit about coffee hour coming up just next week on July 3rd. It's right around the corner. So this month's coffee hour we have done two prior to this one so this is coffee hour number three and basically up until this point with the talks that we've done uh we've really been focusing in on trying to give resources and help to mental health professionals and students who may be curious about what all is involved in running a dbt group from the ground up how to market a group the nuts and bolts and logistics around starting a group from scratch when you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) So those are what our two previous coffee hours have focused on. But our coffee hour that we have coming up next week is really going to be focusing on the importance of choosing a group format of whether you want to do your group in person or whether you want to do it virtually. And this is not anything we would have even thought about prior to COVID in any way, shape, or form. But Kate and I, like so many mental health providers, we were thrust into figuring out what it means to do things online very suddenly when COVID hit. And so we're going to really be talking through in this coffee hour just different things to consider with each option so that you can make a really well-informed choice for yourself. The pros and cons of in-person groups, the pros and cons of virtual groups, things you need to really make sure you have in place so that regardless of which format you pick, you're going to be successful at it. (laughs) We've especially learned a lot of things with virtual groups that we just had no idea about in the beginning. So... We're going to be really diving into all of that, and we think it is a super important topic that's actually pretty complicated and in-depth, so we're going to hope to unravel it a little bit and help it make 
more sense if you've been on the fence about this. And the other things that I'll add in about Coffee Hour, so, right, the Eventbrite link is going to be in the show notes. The Eventbrite link is in the Facebook group if you're a mental health professional who's wanting to sign up. The other thing that's been coming up recently is that we've had some people reach out to us and they're like, hey, I miss Coffee Hours, number one. And number two, can I still get those recordings? Because I've mentioned it before with coffee hours, I'll mention it again, especially because this one's going to be over a holiday weekend. You do not have to attend live. So we do them from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We love for people to attend live because that's great for us. However, even if you can't attend live, don't worry about it. You're going to get a replay sent to you. So if you're at all interested in the past coffee hours that we've already done, just send us an email. So just dbtmepodcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us there and we can discuss how you can pay for those coffee hours and then get them sent to you. So that's an option available to you. And then the other thing too, I recorded a little blurb about it a couple weeks ago, but we're still looking for some mental health professionals who want to help us out with just taking a brief survey so that we can make sure that we're making coffee hours the best that they can be because this is still a relatively new venture for us. I mean, this is only our third one. We're still figuring this out. So I've also posted, well, well, we will also post the link to that in the show notes as well. If you're a mental health professional and you want to help us out, the survey should only take about five minutes. And then you're going to get a promotion code to get $5 off of a future coffee hour of your choice. So it'll only cost you 20 bucks instead of 25 to attend a future coffee hour. I think that's all the stuff I have to say. Do you feel like I'm forgetting anything, Kate? No. Did I cover the bases yeah. of coffee hours? I was going to say same brain because I was actually like, oh, I ought to remind Michelle to talk about the fact that people can buy the old, the previous coffee hours. And then you said it. So no, same brain. Yes, we're realizing uh, this. People are like, shoot, I missed it. Can I still get it? Answer. Like, yes. yes, you can. Yes, you can. So if you're curious, let us know. Yeah, so you can get the whole series, right? Because it doesn't, it, it's not yeah. necessary to go to the previous ones, but some of it definitely builds on each other. So that makes sense to mm-hmm. me. Uh, no, yeah, I can't totally. think of anything else for the moment. I think we're ready to go into closing moment. Awesome. Let's do it. Okay. So as for usual, start by just getting into a comfortable position, whatever that means for you today. Sitting, standing, laying down. And if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, I invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. To begin with, we're just going to start by noticing our breath. You don't need to breathe any more slowly or any more deeply than you are naturally. It's just about tuning in. Just about really focusing in on the rhythms and the sensations of your breath and letting them welcome you into your body and into the present moment. So continue focusing on the breath for this moment while I let you know what we're going to do for today. So I've written down a summary, essentially, a shortened version of each of these seven assumptions that we've talked through today. And I'm going to read them back to you with pauses in between. And I'd love to invite you all to just notice, really leaning into perhaps the observe and describe portions of mindfulness by noticing what happens in your body when I reach 
read each one of these. What thoughts come up for you? What emotions do you notice? As always, with mindfulness, there's no right or wrong answers here. Maybe a lot comes up for you. Maybe almost nothing does. This is just an opportunity to check, to pay attention, to notice, without judgment. What comes up for you with each of these? All right. So the first one is, people are doing the best they can. Again, just noticing what, if anything, you feel in your body in response to that. What thoughts or emotions come up for you? The next is, people want to improve. Next is, people need to do better and try harder. If your mind wanders anytime during this, that's okay. Just gently bring it back to noticing yourself, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, as we continue to go through. The next says, people need to do better and try harder. Next, even if we didn't cause our problems, we have to solve them anyway. Just staying present, just noticing whatever comes up for you. The next reads, new behavior needs to be learned in all relevant contexts. The sixth one says, all behaviors are caused. Again, staying tuned to your body, to your thoughts and your feelings. Just kindly and gently noticing whatever there is to notice. And finally, the last one, changing the cause of behavior works better than judging and blaming. If any of those stood out to you, or you had an especially large or interesting to you response to it, I'd invite you to take some time to do more exploration, maybe even some journaling on it. But for now, you can go ahead and let those thoughts fade and come back into your body and into the room. Maybe doing a few slow, deep breaths, some gentle stretching, 
whatever feels good and right to your body. And whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and open your eyes. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.